Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you please open up your Bibles to the book of Romans? This week we begin in the fourth chapter, Romans chapter 4. We're in the middle of an extended argument, and like I said a couple of weeks ago or last week, we live in a day that is not patient with arguments, and I noticed as I was preaching in the first service this morning that the minute I started in with the argument that the Apostle Paul was making here, that people began to fall asleep. So I want to, and falling asleep generally, there, there are a couple of people here that sometimes actually, I get disappointed when they fall asleep, um, but generally I don't. Um, it doesn't really bother me. I'm glad that you have a nice, warm, cool place to sleep. Uh, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but when I went in the ministry, there was this country church, Rosedale, and there was this one guy, every Sunday he'd place himself precisely behind the head in front of him, and he'd sleep through the whole sermon. And uh, I used to think about how hard it was for the farmers, especially up north, where it's so cold in the winter, that they go out, they do their chores, then they eat breakfast, and then they come to church. What do you think is going to (laughs) happen? You know, they're in a warm place, they're going to fall asleep. But I want you to not fall asleep this morning, okay? Just do me a favor and try to stay awake. It'll be a little hard for a while, but then we'll get to a part where it will be easy for you to stay awake, okay? But I I want to observe the argument. We don't have patience for arguments today. We're lazy intellectually. So watch the argument. It's important. Okay? This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... His wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose deeds have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in chapter 3, the previous chapter, the Apostle Paul has been placing on display in technicolor For his readers, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is, gospel means good news, which is the good news that although no one is righteous in and of himself, God saves man through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He, Jesus Christ, is the righteousness of God that has been manifested. 
And all the Old Testament, both law and prophets, testified to the Savior of ours. So in the previous chapter, verse 21, we read, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And this is our Lord Jesus Christ in his purity. The spotless Lamb of God. And because the righteousness that saves us, that justifies us, is not our own, Gentiles as well as Jews are welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Through Jesus, always and only through Jesus. So a little later in that chapter, verse 29, the Apostle Paul writes, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Now listen, you know how everybody tries to co-opt the Christian word love. You know, John Lennon, love, love, love. But everybody claims to be loving. You know this, right? Everybody claims that the motivation for whatever they do is the, the charity, love, compassion. And in the same way, uh, and, and so sometimes it's difficult as, for us as Christians to, to remind ourselves what love is. Because when you're a Christian, the world will never stop accusing you of being unloving. Okay? And so you always have to stop and remind. I was recently talking to somebody, trying to help somebody. It was just minding my own business, trying to love somebody. And that person, what gives you the right? And what do you have to do at that point? You have to remember why you're doing what you're doing. And so I said to her, listen, this is not about me having any rights. I am trying to help. In other words, this is love. You know, this isn't my ego, trust me. (laughs) I knew you were going to respond this way. But I want to love you. All right? Now, if we are reticent to use the word love and to speak about our love, because we know the world will be, John is about it, we have the same relationship to the word egalitarian. It's used so often, so relentlessly as justification for the most awful things. You know, we're equal, we're equal, we're equal. That sometimes we're, we're hesitant to speak about the egalitarian nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's a central truth about the gospel. The gospel is radically egalitarian. Okay? The gospel does not make distinction between the sophisticated and the stupid, between the well-dressed and the poorly dressed. It doesn't make a distinction between northern and southern hemisphere. Sorry, but God's love is unbelievably liberal. Now, the Apostle Paul has just said, is God the God of Jews only? Is not the God of Gentiles? Well, this is a, this is a hated statement by the Jews. You know, the Jews weren't just, you know, born with a, gold, with a silver spoon in their mouths. They were born with God on their lips. The Jews were proud of the fact that they were monotheistic, whereas in the Roman Empire, everything was polytheistic. You had the pantheon of gods, and the Jews looked down their noses at all the pagans. Because here they had, they thought there were many gods. The Jews knew there was only one God. They knew this. And not only that, but this God had given him 
the laws by which they would be superior to everyone in their morality. And so you go into the ancient world and you read about the morality of the ancient world and it's a cesspool. And so here's the apostle Paul saying, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. On one level, the Jews are like, well, of course, you know, monotheistic, you know. He gives us the law, of course there's only one God. All their gods are idols. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is doing here. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, this God who has provided a path into his presence, his holy presence, is providing that path for both Gentiles and Jews. And so this statement, is he not the God of the Gentiles also, is a body blow to the Jews. You know, it would be like going into, you know, well, forget it. Thinking better of saying it, but, you know, you just think of all the communities and what they take pride in, Right? how different races are proud. Last night I read, uh, <laughs> I was reading, uh, um, what's his face? Uh, Trotsky. I was reading Trotsky's explanation of the birth and childhood and family origins of Joseph Stalin. Well, Joseph Stalin hated Trotsky. They both vied for the approval of Lenin as Lenin died. He ended up killing him, of all places in Mexico, right? Trotsky hated Stalin. And so it starts out, and Trotsky goes on and on about how disgusting a place and how disgusting the people that live in this place are, and the place is called Georgia. All right, and he just says all these things about how Georgians are, are drunkards, are idiots, are stupid, are uh, thick-headed, are are pugnacious. Or, you know, he's just going on and on. Well, every single this is the reason I have no patience for all the talk, all the virtue parading of racial reconciliation. None. I have no patience for it because. We never stop manufacturing pride of every single thing we are, whether it's our race, it's our socioeconomic level, it's our education, it's our skin color. Okay? This is who we are. And so people that think that if we just, like, you know, start videotaping cops, racism is going to be at least ameliorated, if not ended. It's just stupid. I'm not saying you shouldn't videotape cops. I don't think you should, actually. But that, don't worry. You can have your own opinion about that. But here are the Jews. They're just as, as snobbish and conceited as you are. Okay? And at the center of their conceit is they are the true people. Of God. They are the true. And it, it, it actually is true. You remember when the Samaritan woman at the well says to Jesus, you, and he says, hey, 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 you worship what you do. We worship what we, as salvation is of the Jews. 
you know? But with Jesus, it's not conceit and snobbery. It's a simple statement of fact. And the fact is that the God of the Jews is the only God. And so you spend your life being raised in this. You're, you're, you, you know, you're circumcised. Who wants to be circumcised, you know? Okay? And, and then you grow up, and it's inculcated in you. You know, we are people of the book. We are people of the word. We are monotheistic. We keep the Sabbath. We boop, 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 boop. Think of Paul on the road to, to Damascus. He was absolutely certain that as he went around breathing out hatred, murderous threats to the Christians, he was right. Why? Well, the Christians, the Christians looked at Jesus by faith, and they seemed somehow to have been released from all the penny-ante rules of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. What's going on here? We're the people of God. We have the only true God. We have the law. We're moral. And they look down at all the Canaanites. And then Paul comes along and he says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? This is a body blow to Jews. The apostle Paul is assaulting them right where it hurts. He is destroying their pride. And so he has to argue and argue and argue and argue and argue. And this chapter is really only an exegetical, an expositional work about what he said just before, okay? So he just got done, is God not the God of Jews only? Well, of course they agree that God is the God of Gentiles and Jews, yeah? But not the God who saves Gentiles, these filthy people, you know? And so he knows he has work to do. Because he can remember being a Pharisee of Pharisees. He can remember on on the road to Damascus, he's going to go and he's going to deal with these Christians that believe in grace and faith. And Jesus, he's the Messiah. So pathetic he got himself crucified, you know? He's in their brains. He knows what they're thinking. Listen, I never want to stop telling you to love the Apostle Paul. Do not stop loving the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is a wonderful, wonderful uh, sinner. And everybody's assaulting the Apostle Paul today. Everybody knows precisely how they'd write everything Paul ever wrote if they had been the one that God was inspiring. Everybody just says, Paul, Paul, Paul. Well, you know, Paul. But on the other hand, that's what a a Methodist guy that came into our town, came to the minister's group, and he says, you know, just out of nowhere, we've been getting along with each other, and this guy comes in, and of course he's a conservative who's decided to become liberal, the worst people. And, And he's sitting there, and he says, well, you know, Paul, Paul had, had, Paul was dogmatic, but Jesus just loved people. You know, Jesus was not doctrinal, he said. Paul was doctrinal, Jesus. Well, you know which side he's on, right? Do I have to tell you? It's not Paul. (laughs) Oh, And he just would go on and on. He was just baiting everybody there, and everybody there was intimidated except somebody. I don't remember the guy's name. But the guy that was there that wasn't intimidated looked at him and he said, well, um, Jesus said, um, you know, that, that 
He is the propitiation for our sins. So in other words, take the most dogmatic statement in all of the New Testament and, and put it in the mouth of Jesus. They say, well, Jesus said he's the propitiation for our sins. And he looks at me, he says, you know what he says, right? He says, that's not Pete, that's not Jesus, that's, that's Paul. And I said, well, all scripture is God-breathed. So actually Jesus is the one that said that. The Apostle Paul's writing, he knows our self-righteousness, he knows our pride. He even knows the particular direction of our ethnicity. And so he knows the direction our pride flows in based on who we are, who our parents are. He knows all of that. And so he realizes when he just said, is he not the God of Gentiles also? He has some heavy work to do. And so he sets about the work. Now, if you were going to set about the work of getting them to swallow what you're saying about the nature of salvation, and you realize you've just given them a brutal blow, what do you do? Well, it's the most obvious thing in the world, right? He says, verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? In other words, you call in an authority. But you call in an authority that's supreme. And the, the supreme authority to the Jews is their father, Abraham. He was their father. The apostle Paul knows he has some work to do. What he has to do is take the gospel and show it in the Old Testament. And it would be good if you could choose two of the three principal heroes of the Old Testament, that their ethnicity, that their racial superiority, that their moralism was most concentrated in, and who would it be? Well, you could argue that he left out Moses and Elijah, right? But I mean, it would be Abraham. And who else? Well, it would be King David. That Jesus was such a pathetic failure to mimic. And so that's what he does. He says, our forefather Abraham, according to the flesh, what has he found? In other words, let me, let me pull in our father, and let me talk about our daddy, okay? Here's our daddy. Here's our forefather. Now, what about Abraham? That's essentially what he says. Then verse 2, 4, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. So if works save us, and Abraham saved, we all know that, then Abraham has something to boast about. Well, okay. So how do we all feel about boasting, right? You know, we all like to do, well, not all of us. Ginger doesn't like to boast. But other than Ginger, everybody in this church loves to boast, <laughs> you know. We don't like boasting, do we? This is not a positive statement that Abraham has something to boast about. Everybody would, re- would, would be, would be uh, everybody would be put off by the use of the word boast because boasting stands for pride. And nobody likes other people voicing their pride. That's what boasting is. And so he says, well, then he would have something to boast about. Even though it's Father Abraham, you don't want Father Abraham to boast. You just don't want. 
It's unseemly. It's not godliness, right? The premise is, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And then he adds this. He says, but not before God. In other words, if you can establish the superiority of of Abraham in obedience, and if we can all agree, since we're all Jews, that he was more obedient than any of us have ever been, and and a good Jew is going to say, yeah, 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 right? I mean, he took Isaac up on top of the mountain, for heaven's sakes, you know. Okay. So we might be willing to go along with Abraham being superior to us in obedience and righteousness and everything, And then he says he has something to boast about, and we're like, well, uh, yeah, I mean, if I was in his presence, he was telling me what what an obedient man he was, I'm I'm like, okay, yeah. I mean, I don't like Abraham boasting, but he was so godly, he wouldn't really have boasted. And I'll go ahead and go along with it. And then he adds this little statement, but not before God. And then all of a sudden, we're reminded that the standard is not man, but God. Who in their right mind is going to boast before God? Are you going to boast before God? No. Every mouth will be stopped. And so adding that, but not before God, brings us back to reality, doesn't it? We're willing to accept the superiority of Abraham, right? In obedience, right? And so if there were such a thing as a man being saved by obedience, we would not mind Abraham being the one to boast about it. But then that little thing, but not before God. It's like, (laughs) whoa. (laughs) And so it sets us back on our haunches. You feel this, but not before God. And it's like, no, 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 nope, 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 nope. No man, no woman ever can brag before God. If they brag before God, their God is too small and too weak and actually pathetic. Man is man. God is God. And that much we know for sure. And it is the very definition of God that he made it us and we did not make ourselves. What pot stands before his potter and asks why he has been made this way? What man stands before God and brags? I, I get so tired of pastors who brag. Virtue parading, claiming to be culturally superior, to have a better understanding of who needs championing and who doesn't. They're God's gift to women. They're God's gifts to blacks. Excuse me, African Americans. They're God's gift to everyone, except their wife, trust me. And I, and I listened, and I was thinking about this yesterday when I got up, and I was remembering reading the Hornblower series, C.S. Forrester. And one of the things that most stands out about that series is how 
when these great warriors on the high seas in the Royal Navy, when they have a victory, everybody wants them to brag. You come back into the harbor, you know, after a couple of years of being gone, and you've had great, you know, uh, you've captured ships, you have riches to dispense to all the sailors that worked under you, all the officers, you, you, you're in your glory. And people will try to seduce them to get them to brag. And you will not, and these are not Christian men. You will never find them bragging. Never. Why? Well, they believe that if they were proud and they bragged, that God would judge them. They, in their secularism and in their unbelief, still believe that God hates the proud and resists them. They knew God was in his heaven and that it was God's glory to brag. (laughs) When God does it, it's the truth. When we do it, it's a lie. God is glorious, and he is jealous for his own glory. So the whole idea of Abraham being able to brag with us, we're all right with it, but when Abraham brags before God, no, such a thing could never be. The Apostle Paul continues, for what the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and it was credited as righteousness. Did you notice that it says the scripture Have you noticed that it's always and only the Scripture says, the Scripture says? Learn this truth, man of learning and knowledge. If God has lowered himself to speak to you in written words, you best honor those words as the very words of God. When he has humbled himself to the written word, you are to humble yourself to those words that he has written, that he has inspired. And so the Apostle Paul builds his argument on the Scriptures. And what does the Scripture say? For what the Scripture says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, where did that come from? Well, it came from the book of Genesis. Let me read it to you. The first book of the Law and Prophets, Genesis chapter 15. And he, speaking of the mighty God of the universe, took him, speaking of Father Abraham, outside. And he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he, God, said to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. So yesterday I read an article about how brilliant Mars is right now. I didn't know this, you know. But it's brilliant right now. About 10 o'clock at night, you'll begin to see it. So the other night, Joseph showed up, and Joseph is, you know, like stars. And, and so we're out very late at night after an elders meeting, and as soon as we get out of the church, he says, there's Mars. It's like, who cares? There's Mars. Oh, thank you. You know? I didn't say anything because I thought, well, it's my quirky son. Then I read this article because I thought, it was an article on Mars. I thought, well, you know, maybe there's some reason just... So then I read about it, and I find that Mars is in its prestidigenous location of the middle half of the sol- solipsis or something like that. I don't know what it is. <laughs> now, look. I'm not an astronomer. 
But do you realize the difference in the sky that God took Abraham out to look at and the sky that we look at? Sometime Google light pollution. And what you will find is that prior to our period in history, when there are lights everywhere, the sky was absolutely brilliant. The Milky Way literally looked like somebody had taken a big can of milk and just spilled it all over the ceiling. It was brilliant. And God takes Abraham out, and this poor, this poor dude, he had no children. <laughs> and so God takes him out and has him look at the Milky Way. <laughs> Go ahead, count them, if you can. And of course, the idea is you can't. So shall your descendants be. That number, right? And he has no children. And then we read this. Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. You know, this week, uh, I think I'm okay in saying this. Um, Joseph shows up for elders meeting, walks in. I didn't know he was coming. And we spend quite a bit of time hanging out afterwards and talking, and then with, with pastors and elders, and then we get home. And we sit and talk for another couple hours, go to bed at two in the morning, right? And the next morning I get up, and I'm downstairs by what, nine or ten? And I get downstairs, and there in one room are Mary Lee and Tim. And Joseph says, I have some news. Well, I knew he was discouraged about some parts of his life, and I, I just said, well, I don't want any good news. Oh, no, I said, I don't want any news. And he said, oh, this is good. I said, okay, what is it? And he said, Hi. he said, Heidi's pregnant. And listen, I remember year after year after year of Heidi being in that office of our church without a child. And it was hard, very hard. And here God is just pouring his his blessings out on this man and woman, Heidi and Joseph. They don't, they don't deserve his blessings. Here Abraham is. He doesn't have any children. And God says, so shall your descendants be. Now let me ask you truthfully, especially those of you who are barren, would you have believed God? I can remember so many of you how you didn't think God was going to give you children. And again and again, God has given children. I remember one woman as she left our church one Sunday morning in the door. She was in tears. She was a college student. She said the doctors had told her she'd never have children. And let me tell you, does that woman have children? (laughs) She done have children. And it's so precious to see how God is faithful to settle the barren woman in a house with her brood. It's so precious. And God said to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. Would you have believed God if he told you that? 
Do you remember another time when God says the same thing? Do you remember what Sarah did? She laughed. And Sarah, remember what it says, her, her, her womb, what? you remember? As good as dead. <laughs> and what the Bible tells us about Abraham is not that he worked real hard to try to you know, figure out ovulation and, you know, went in and got fertility assistance and, and adopted and did a, did a starter campaign for adoption. It, what it says is simply this. In other words, don't you know how you and I would turn his response into God as an act of obedience and faithfulness and rob God of his glory? Because what it says is simply this. It says, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Do you know what a lot of scholars do with this text where Paul cites this? They say that Paul does violence to the Old Testament verse. Because it's just talking about a specificity of Abram. And it's dealing with the issue of having children. And it's like, and so here are these stingy, faithless, moralistic, intellectually proud men condemn the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul for using this to prove the fact that we are saved. Not by works, but by grace through faith. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. When I was uh, preparing the sermon, what did I think of at that time? Abraham believed. Well, (laughs) what I remembered was when God told him to take his only begotten son and sacrifice him. You remember that. And so his son Isaac, they're going up the mountain, he wants to know, where's the lamb? Yes, his dad. And we read, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham was obedient in many ways, but Abraham was a sinner just like you. And the fascinating thing is, that the Apostle Paul is trying to convince the Jews that it is not their righteousness, it's not them keeping the law, it's not their ethnic pride, it's not circumcision, it's not the Sabbath, it's not everything that they would trust in. But it's simply faith in God's provision, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Calvin writing on this, he says, now that it is agreed that he has, and he's referring to Abraham, now that it is agreed that he, Abraham, has been freely justified, freely justified. His posterity, this is you and me, his posterity who claim a righteousness of their own by the law ought to have been overcome by shame and hold their peace. In other words, if Abraham is not saved by his works but by faith, how horrible it is for us to parade our righteousness and cling to it. We should be ashamed of ourselves, and we should shut our mouths. 
Now, I know that you don't think, you all think that you do just, that it's just Jesus for you, right? Right? That's what you all think, because you're a Christian. You know, you're in a Bible-believing church, you know? You all think that it's just Jesus alone that you trust in, right? Right? Come on, admit it. Bunk and double bunk. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul knows this and he then says, Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is still. So he knows they're still trusting in their works. And he says, Okay, you do works, then you get what, what is your due. He's setting this up in opposition to Abraham. Abraham believed. Okay, but the one who works, what he earns is what he earned. It's his wages, right? It's not a favor. Workman is worthy of his wages if God requires morality, goodness, keeping of the laws, a way of entering his glorious presence. And the man, all right, now follow this. If God requires morality, goodness, keeping of the laws, the way of entering his glorious presence, and the man who is sort of good, notice how immediately we start using hedge words, you know, sort of good. We're not going to be claimed to be perfect, but God grades on a curve, right? You know, and the administration has said, don't give bad grades to the students, right? God requires morality, goodness, keeping the laws, the way of entering his glorious presence, then the man who is sort of good, kind of good, more good than bad, better than his father, better than his neighbor, good in an evil day, better than his colleagues, not divorced, not a thief, generally speaking, not too bad with his tongue, not too bad with his imagination sexually, not addicted to wine, not addicted to beer. Now, we're not addicted to crystal meth, not addicted to Valium and sleeping pills, sort of generous in a certain carefully controlled sort of way, sort of loving sometimes when it's not too costly, careful to read his Bible and pray and have devotions most days. Those men, those women, have earned their wage of eternal life. It's like, now this is what we think. But does not Scripture say, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but is what is due? And we say, but wait, what were we talking about? Wasn't it just declared in God's holy word that there is no fear of God before our eyes? That none is righteous, not one. No, not one. And so if we're talking about wages and works, there is no hope for us. No man who has ever lived has been righteous, not one. But praise God, verse 5, but to the one who does not work, and right about this point, we're like, oh, yes. Please tell me what the man that doesn't work gets. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And so, listen, people, being a moralist does not work. It does not work to be a moralist. It doesn't work with God, and that's the whole point the Apostle Paul is making. It doesn't work with anybody else. All you'll do is you'll destroy your marriage, 
You'll destroy your friendships. You'll destroy your children. You'll destroy the church that you're in. Being a moralist does not work. People see through us, and all our high-minded opinion of ourselves inevitably leaves our life and friendships and marriage and family in shreds. But thank God there is another way, a way different than the way the Jews at the time of Christ and the Apostle Paul thought, and that way is grace. This way of grace is for the one who does not work. Remember the man who started his work at the end of the day and shared the same pay as the man who went to work early and suffered the heat of the day? You remember that parable? This is how God works. Jesus told us this, and it should be joy for us. There is another way, and it's reserved for the man who doesn't work, for the man who despairs of his own moralism, his own righteousness, and his own ownness. The man who despairs of sins utterly gives up and turns to God, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as a righteousness. He turns to God and he believes in him. God and Jesus Christ hanging on the tree. And he says, he's my man because I'm ungodly. And God justifies the ungodly. And he is righteousness. He is righteousness. He is righteousness. In other words, praise the Lord. You, you qualify. He justifies the ungodly, and you and I are ungodly. Now, do you know this deep down inside of yourself? Do you know that you are ungodly? Every time I listen to the book of Romans, this is the one phrase that gives me the most hope and joy as I listen to it. God justifies the ungodly. <laughs> now that's hopeful. That's hopeful. Because I know what I am. I know what You can imagine Jews listening to the Apostle Paul, and they say, but here, what is this? Since when are ungodly men saved? Hey, Paul, where do you get this stuff? The scriptures tell us the man who keeps the law will be saved. This is the reason we refer to the scriptures as what? As the law and the prophets, right? The law tells us what will please God. And says, if we do these things, we and our children will live. And the prophets tell us when we're not doing these things. Where are you getting this strange doctrine of God saving the ungodly? And again, the Apostle Paul anticipates his listeners' objections. He's called in the heavy of Abraham. Now he calls in another heavy, and that's King David. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then quoting David in the Psalms, he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Have your sins been covered? Have your sins been covered? 
have your sins been covered. Do you know how I know whether or not your sins have been covered? Just to speak for myself, I know it by your humility. I know it because you are quick to ask forgiveness. You are quick to assume that you are the one who failed. You are not going around pointing other people's failures out but you're parading your own. The person who has faith in Jesus Christ is constantly testifying that they are ungodly. Does this make sense to you? If you are saved by the righteousness of Christ, why wouldn't you take every opportunity to tell people that? Why would you take every opportunity to tell people how awful they are? Why not help them by telling them how awful you are? Do you know what? The man or woman who never asks for forgiveness and hates doing it is someone without faith. And without faith, you can't please God. Listen, there are only two ways you can live in your life. You grow in your ability to confess that you're ungodly, or you decline in your ability to confess that you're ungodly. And the Apostle Paul, when he got old, said he was the chief of sinners. And nobody thought he was virtue signaling. Everybody knew that he was as serious as death when he said that. It wasn't manipulation on his part. He wasn't saying that so that you'd realize that you're the chief of sinners. It was, a, it was an exclamation of despair on his part that glorified God because everybody knew he was the chief of sinners. After all, the Holy Spirit inspired him to say that. And they knew that he clung to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, often in the Bible it says that those who are saved will be those who continue to keep their faith to the very end. And what this means is that there are going to be, and I believe it's many, who will not cling to their faith to the end. Now, we can argue about whether this means that they had no true faith. That's what I believe it means. I think that's what Scripture teaches, that their faith was not true. And that that's why they don't cling to it to the end. But you know, the life of a pastor is spent watching person after person after person after person after person spin out of the church because they will not admit their sin. This is what you do as a pastor. You watch the seed fall on the soils, and then you learn that one out of the four kinds of soil, as Jesus told the story, produces fruit. Are you with me? You know, an awful lot of times, those people that are spun out, you know what they do when they leave? They go to the PCA church here in town, to the Reformed Pres church in town. They, 
and they lie about the elders and pastors of this church. They lie through their teeth. They never say that lovingly, tenderly, with tears, that their pastors and elders, the older women of this church, pleaded with them to confess their sins. That's never what they say. You think Alexander, the metal worker, (laughs) was going around telling people how much the Apostle Paul had loved him and pleaded with him to repent? No, Alexander, the metal worker, the Bible says, did Paul much harm. And you know something, when we plead with you to confess your sin, it's not because we're little men who are insecure and must be right. If you ever come in for counseling to my office, you know one thing that will drive you crazy is I just flip my opinion all the time. I probe here and then think, no, that was stupid. Then I probe here and, listen, if you want to find somebody be wrong, just come in my office. I'll be wrong all the time. It's not about whether I'm right or wrong. It's about whether you have it within yourself to have faith in Jesus instead of yourself. That's what it all breaks down to. It all comes down to who you want to trust in. And listen, if you trust in Jesus, that's faith. And that faith will make you able to confess your sins. And when people hear you confess your sins, they'll realize that you don't have a high opinion of yourself. And you have a very high opinion of the blood of Jesus. And as you go through life, what's going to happen is there will be this, okay, okay. Okay, you ready? Safe place. All around you will be a safe place where other people can confess their sins. And all of you together, you and your great dignity, confessing your sin and everybody around you, everybody will say, that's such a sweet, happy place for me. No pretenses. No getting a leg up on each other. Know who has the nicest SUV and the bleachiest hair. But instead, the glory of Jesus Christ. Because everybody under him is confessing that they are ungodly. And so we're free to love each other. And that means we're free to forgive each other. Because he forgave us, because he loved us, we love one another. Listen. In the last couple of weeks, we have been hard at work. Hard, hard, hard at work. Trying to get some of our number to confess their sin. And we meet with them, we plead with them, we pray for them. We meet together. We meet with their friends. We meet with their family. We talk to them. We talk to them and talk to them. And when everything is said and done, the simple reality is that there are people with faith and people who don't have faith. And people with faith confess their sin. That's it. 
That's it. And so if you are someone who says you're a Christian and you don't confess your sin, you don't confess it to your wife, you don't confess it to your husband, you don't confess it to your children, what you need to ask yourself is whether you are in the faith. Because all your actions and words testify that you do not know Jesus. Do you understand me? Make no mistake about this. If you are proud, you cannot know Jesus Christ, who for our sake was humbled to death, even the death on a cross. And God is jealous for the glory of this son. He will not tolerate us usurping his glory and claiming ourselves that we're moral, that we're good, that we've kept the law, that we're superior to other people. He has no patience for that because it tears his son off the cross. It tramples on the blood of Jesus. Let me read to you from Hebrews. It says this. This is in chapter 3. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by this deceitfulness of sin. You know, you think about some of the issues we're dealing with and you just think, yeah, sin is deceitful, right? We all know this, right? And what does deceitfulness of sin do to us? It hardens us. Be careful while it's still called today. Don't let the deceitfulness of sin harden you. That's just me mimicking the work of pastors. This drone. It goes on and on and on and on. That's all we ever say. Don't let the deceitfulness of sin harden you. And then it says this, for we have become partakers of Christ. Don't let the deceitfulness of sin harden you. For we have become partakers of Christ. And then this little word, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Having begun with Christ, are you now a moralist? Is that how you learn Jesus? Did you learn Jesus because of your self-righteousness? Or did you learn Jesus because you despaired of keeping the law and realized you were ungodly? If you began... Don't let the deceitfulness of sin throw you off the scent, throw you off the path. Keep that assurance to the end. And the way to do that is confess your ungodliness. Did you hear me? I'm a pastor and I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, confess your ungodliness. And you say, to whom? And I say, well, go find a Roman Catholic confessional and get down on your knees, and I hope it's dark, and I hope he can't see your face. And you say, well, what in particular? And I say, well, most certainly don't get specific. Just go up to somebody that you know and love and just say, I am ungodly, and that will completely satisfy them. 
They'll say to you, yeah, I noticed that, 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 what, that you didn't go to bed until 2 o'clock in the morning, you didn't get up this morning, you didn't help with the children. Stop it! I'm ungodly, generally speaking, but I worked hard yesterday. They say, well, yeah, I noticed that, that, I noticed that you don't speak well of your wife at the dinner table the other night. You were saying things you didn't like about her in front of other people. Well, they know I love you. Well, it made them uncomfortable. Well, so what? You know, that's how we are. You know, we'll cop to being ungodly, you know, but give us specificity. And I mean, it's wrestling with a pig in mud. Nobody will cop to any specific act of ungodliness. No, not generalities, specificity. And specificity to those that really matter, which is your husband, your wife, your roommate, your son, your daughter, your father. If you can confess your sin to your family, it glorifies God, and you just keep doing that to the very end. And those of you who do this all the time, You're such a help to me, and I thank you. I don't know how I could preach without you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the godly in our midst who are quick to confess their sins. Father, would you glorify them in this church? Would you please shine like Jesus Christ from their faces, and would you cause us to honor them above everyone in this church? And would you give them faith, and all of us faith, to continue to the very end to confess our sins, and to admit that we are not hoping, indeed, that we tremble at the thought of being given our wages when we die, but that our trust is solely in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.